morning, everyone. I think that feels like uh, the beginning of an early 2000s movie, doesn't it? But uh, hey, I am so glad to be here, so glad that you are here with us. I was not here last week. I was at my cousin's wedding. He was the best man in my wedding, and last week I had the privilege to be the best man in his wedding all the way out in Michigan. And so last week I went to church in Michigan, and I just got to say, I missed you guys. Like, it's not the same as being here. And so I am so glad to be back. And this morning, we are getting into a new series. This one is called A Tale of Three Kings. And as you can guess, we'll be talking about the lives of three kings in the Old Testament. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from them. Back when I was at the wedding last week, I had the chance to connect with a bunch of family members that I don't get to see very often. And I was talking to one of my cousins who is doing a podcast. He does the research for this podcast, and he also co-hosts it with another guy. And the name of his podcast is called Collapsed. And what he does is he looks at uh, success stories of businesses that rose to the top and then just collapsed and fell apart. And when I think of businesses like that, some of the ones that come to my mind are Toys R Us, Kodak, and Blockbuster. And I think the big question is, what happened to those businesses? Or what changes did they make? What things did they do wrong that took them from the top to the bottom? And so that's what my cousin does with his podcast is he explores those businesses to learn some pretty helpful lessons. Like if you're in business, you probably want to know what makes other businesses successful And you probably want to know what pitfalls have led to the collapse of a lot of businesses. And so there's a lot to learn from that. And back when I was in history class, when I was a kid, there was this one saying that was constantly drilled into my head. And that is, if you don't learn from history, you are doomed to repeat it. And so I think there is a lot of value of looking back in history, learning from the example of what people do well, and also learning from the example of things they don't do so well that led to a pretty bad outcome. And I would much rather learn from somebody else's mistakes than experience the consequences of those mistakes firsthand. And so this morning, we'll be talking about the first king over all of Israel and taking a look at his life and some of the things that maybe were good, but mostly things in his life that we don't want to follow after. And so the name of this king was Saul. And before Saul was king over Israel, the nation was led by this prophet of God named Samuel. And so what would happen is God would give instructions to Samuel, and then Samuel would tell the word of God to the people in Israel, and they would follow after the word of God through the prophet Samuel. Samuel was not king over Israel because the whole idea was that God was to be the king and the leader over the Israelite people. They were to look to God for direction and for instructions. But the people in Israel did not like this setup. And so they were going to Samuel and they were saying, we want to have a king just like all the other nations. We want somebody who can lead our armies into battle, someone who can be our representative here. And Samuel didn't like that idea. He's like, no, no, that's not God's plan. God is supposed to be our leader. But then God talked to Samuel and told Samuel, these people have already rejected me. These people don't listen to me to begin with. So just give them what they want. Give them a king. 
And so actually God handpicked the first king over all of Israel. And this guy's name was Saul. The Bible says that Saul was tall and handsome. So when I think of what Saul looked like, this is the picture that I think of. (laughs) He was a sight to behold. This was like a man's man. And he had a lot of things really going for him. Now, can you imagine if somebody came up to you and was like, hey, you are going to be king of a nation that has never, ever had a king. I'd be like, no way. What kind of April Fool's joke is this? I'm not going to go telling my friends, hey, guess what? I was just picked out to be king. They'd probably laugh at you, right? So if that's the case, then there needed to be some way to confirm that Saul was really picked out by God to be the king of Israel. And Samuel gave Saul some very specific prophecies. And all of those very specific prophecies came true. And it confirmed that Saul really was chosen by God to be the king over Israel. And at the end of giving Saul all of these prophecies, the prophet Samuel gave Saul some instructions to follow. And so these are the instructions. He said, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. And so Samuel's given Saul these instructions for some time in the future. And what Saul doesn't know is that his obedience to these instructions will make or break his position as king. And if Saul is to disobey these instructions, it's the exact same thing as disobeying instructions straight from God because Samuel the prophet is speaking on behalf of God. And what we'll be looking at this morning is a scenario where Saul is really put to the test. And just like any test, it is not easy. And so what we see is that Saul is in the heat of battle when he is put to the test of obeying God. During this time in history, the Israelites were constantly at war with the Philistines. And the Philistines had conquered this land of Geba, and they had an outpost set up there. Now, the Israelites wanted to take it back. They didn't have a super big army, but Saul had split them up so that he had 2,000 men under his command here in Michmash. And his son, Jonathan, had 1,000 soldiers under his command here in Gibeah. And so to take possession of Geba, Saul, or, uh, Jonathan launched an attack with these 1,000 men. And this did two things. First, it got the Israelite people all pumped up for battle. Saul is sounding the trumpet. He's like, all right, we got Geba. Now let's all assemble in Gilgal, and we're going to get together an even bigger army. The other thing that this attack did is it ticked off the Philistines big time. And so while Saul is assembling his army in Gilgal, the Philistines are also assembling their army here in Michmash. And the Philistines bring in 3,000 chariots. Now back in biblical times, these chariots are basically like a tank. It is a huge military advantage. So Saul has 3,000 men to start with. These guys have 3,000 chariots. And on top of that, they have 6,000 chariot riders. So that's double the army size that Saul has. But that's not it. The Bible says that the Philistines had more foot soldiers 
than the number of sand on the seashore. Now, that's a very poetic way of saying they have a lot of soldiers. And so the Israelites are outnumbered like at least 10 to 1 by my calculations. And then on top of all of that, the Philistines have a huge advantage with their advancements in weapons. See, the Philistines had entered into the Iron Age. They had metal spears and swords and shields and all that kind of stuff. The Israelites, however, were kind of living in the Stone Age. The Bible says that during this time, there was not one single blacksmith in all of Israel. And that's how the Philistines wanted to keep it. They didn't want the Israelites to be able to make weapons to go to battle with them. And so the Israelites, they had some metal farming tools, and they would have to take their farming tools all the way to Philistia in order for them to sharpen those tools. So can you imagine being one of those men who's just recruited into Saul's army? You get there at Gilgal, you're like, yes, we're ready to fight. We already took over Geba. And then you see the odds that are stacked against you. It's like 10 to 1, and you're taking a club or a farm tool to a sword fight. I don't know about you, but I would not want to stick around to see how that fight goes down. And so a lot of Saul's soldiers are like, all right, peace out. I'm out of here. And they just leave Saul. And so his army that started out as 3,000 men shrinks down to 600 men. And Saul is in a pretty desperate situation here. And he's afraid that the Philistines will come from Michmash and attack him while he is vulnerable and while he has a very tiny army. So like he and his soldiers are just hiding out in caves at this point. And there is only one way that Saul could even have a fighting chance against the Philistines. And that would be if God was fighting the battle for them. And that's not a crazy hope to hold on to because all throughout Israel's history, God had been there with them. And there were times when God would fight battles for the Israelites. Like by human standards, there is no way that the Israelites should have won some of these battles. But God supernaturally gave them the victory. So that's what these Israelites really needed in this scenario here. They needed God to show up. They needed God to fight these battles for them. And so what Saul wanted to do was to offer a sacrifice to God to make sure that he had the favor of God, to make sure that God was on his side, and to boost the morale of his troops so his troops could know that God was on their side. But remember the words of Samuel the prophet to begin with. He said that when Saul was in Gilgal, to wait seven days for him to get there before offering any sacrifice to God. But as day after day goes on, Saul is losing more and more troops. They're just deserting him. And finally, the seventh day comes, and Samuel is not there on the morning of the seventh day. I'm pretty sure Saul was wondering if Samuel would even get there. And he's probably thinking, do I wait any longer and lose more troops? Or do I just go ahead and offer this sacrifice to God? I mean, what would you do if you were in a scenario like that? So we're going to check out what Saul does. And we're in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And we'll be picking up in verse 8. It says that he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. 
And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering. Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I will not have sought the Lord's favor. And so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, as we read this, we can see Saul has a pretty decent case, right? I mean, at least he waited seven days before offering this sacrifice. But the problem is that Samuel had not arrived yet. So Saul was not completely obedient to God. He was only partially obedient to God. And the real question is, is partially obedient good enough? Well, let me give you some other comparisons. What do you call a math problem that is partially right? It's wrong. What do, you, what do you call somebody who obeys most of the laws? A criminal, right? So what do you call somebody who is mostly obedient? Disobedient. And so Saul's disobedience, even though it seemed like he was only partially disobedient, was just the same as straight-up disobedience. And there is a very severe consequence for his disobedience here. We see this in verse 13. It says, You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And so because of Saul's disobedience, his time as king over Israel was cut short. And his own son, Jonathan, would not sit on the throne over Israel. In fact, none of Saul's descendants would ever rule over Israel because of his disobedience. Now we could probably think, maybe this is a little bit too severe, right? It's not like Saul did something so bad like killing innocent people or setting up a temple for a false god. All Saul did was offer a sacrifice to God. Offering a sacrifice is worship. Like, what's the big deal with that? But if we could just pull back the curtains of Saul's heart, we would see that there's actually a lot more going on here than just offering a sacrifice at the wrong time. What we actually see is that Saul trusted his own judgment more than he trusted the judgment and the instructions of God. And when Saul was in this situation, he was looking around, and he saw that his people were leaving him. He saw that he was far outnumbered, and he was afraid that if he did not offer the sacrifice right then and there, that things would be even worse for him. And so he thought that it was in his best interest to disobey God and offer the sacrifice rather than wait for Samuel to show off, show up, I mean. Now, none of us would probably say that we think we know better than God. But so often, don't we act like we know better than God? Like we know some things that God says are wrong. Sometimes we do it. Like let's take lying, for example. It's pretty clear in the Bible that lying does not honor God. But 
Think about the situations you could be in where if you tell the truth to somebody, they're going to be very disappointed in you. They are going to be upset with you. Things are going to blow up, and it's just going to be messy. And if you could just tell a lie, then you could get out of that situation, and it wouldn't be a big deal, right? And so this, there's these two options on the table. Do you do what God wants you to do and enter into a messy situation and have somebody upset with you? Or do you make your own judgment call and do what you think is best and just tell a lie to get out of there? And I think that we are in situations like that probably every day where we are put to the test. Are we going to do what we think is best? Are we going to do what is really best for us, what God says? And even in this scenario, Saul didn't really learn his lesson in obedience to God. And what we're going to look at next is when Saul was in a very similar situation and he still chose partial obedience again. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 15, picking up in verse 1. And here, Saul is given a mission by God. In verse 1, it says, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now this is one of those passages in the Bible that a lot of Christians are ashamed of. Maybe you want to just like cross this out in your Bibles or censor it in church. Like how could a loving God order for the destruction of a whole nation of people? And I think there's a lot that I could say about this, but due to time, I'm only going to give a short explanation. And if that short explanation is not good enough for you, then you can always feel free to talk to me about it. I'd love to have this conversation with you. But first, I just want to answer the question, why does God want these people to be destroyed? And it all goes back to the time when the nation of Israel had been set free from Egypt, and they were wandering around in the wilderness. And these Amalekites, kind of out of no reason, out of nowhere, for no reason, just attacked the Israelites and were responsible for the death of many Israelite people who were just totally innocent and on that day, God said that he would someday blot out the Amalekite people, just wipe out that whole nation. But actually, God showed them mercy. God did not wipe them out that very day. Instead, he let them live for hundreds of more years. And now, God is following through with his word on wiping out those people. And he's using Saul to do that. And God is doing that. So that these wicked Am Amalekite people would not have the opportunity again to do violence to innocent. And so let's go back to the story and see how Saul responds to these instructions from God, starting in verse 7. It says, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Hevaliah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all of his people he totally destroyed with the sword. 
But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs and everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. This is so awful here. It's another example of Saul's partial obedience. He followed through with killing the women and the children and all of that. But then he keeps this wicked king named Agag alive. And I don't know for sure why he kept the king alive. But my best guess is that by keeping Agag alive, it was like a living trophy of his victory over the Amalekites. You just picture Saul feasting at a table, and at the other end of the table is this enemy king just sitting there in chains, a reminder of Saul's victory over the Amalekites. And so in addition to leaving the Amalekites alive, Saul also let his men keep the fat cows and the sheep and all these other animals that were of value because they're like, there's no way we want to kill these animals and just let all of this good meat go to waste. I mean, think of all the nights of steak and silence that you could have with the cows in this area. And maybe today, unless you're like a farmer, you're like, what's the big deal, Saul? I mean, if it's between obeying God or keeping around some animals, why don't you just obey God? So just to help frame that out in maybe today's terms, I'm going to do a little demonstration up here. And for that, I need a volunteer from the audience, somebody who's at least 18 years old. Do I have any takers? I promise I won't embarrass you too much. You don't have to say anything. Any takers? All right. Uh, Brad, come on up here. All right. This is the only time that we'll be allowed to play with fire in church. So I'm going to give you this lighter, and I have in my wallet here $200 bills. And so what I would like you to do is to set these on fire. Do you have a pen to make sure they're not they're real? Oh, <laughs> go ahead. And, just go ahead and do it. Yeah, light it on fire. This is my tithe money. All right. Thanks, Brad. That's it. That's all you had to do. All right. Last time I tried blowing on that, I just like put it up in flames even more. Now, how many of you, if God told you to just take all of your income and light it on fire, you'd be like, yeah, that's fine. All right. First, I got to say, this is not real money. <laughs> uh, every time I keep going, everybody's just like in shock. I'm like, I am not giving money to this church again. They just burn it from stage. No, that's not what's going on here. Um, but like, really, this is kind of the scenario that Saul is in with his men. They're surrounded by all this livestock, all of these resources that they really could use. And God tells them to put it to the death and just waste it. And so Saul just gives in to disobedience here. And I think that his disobedience is really the primary thing that led to his downfall as king. But as a byproduct to his disobedience, Saul also struggled with taking personal responsibility for his disobedience. So this is what we see in verse 13 here. It says, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions, mostly. But Samuel said, 
What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. And so when Saul gets busted by Samuel, instead of taking responsibility for his disobedience, he totally just throws his soldiers under the bus. And he's like, they're the ones who kept these animals alive. And I think in doing that, Saul was trying to protect his reputation, keep the respect, and probably have a good view of himself. I mean, he doesn't want to own up to the fact that he was at fault. He'd rather make somebody else look like they are the ones who are at fault and they are the ones who failed to follow through with God's instructions. And I think that in doing that, in passing on the blame, Saul thought that he was protecting his reputation, protecting his respect, and protecting even his view of himself. But even, that was actually so backwards. Because let's face it, it's hard to respect somebody who doesn't own up to their faults. It's hard to uh, have a good reputation if you're that person who's just constantly throwing people under the bus. One of the most influential books that I've ever read is this book called Extreme Ownership. It was written by a couple of Navy SEALs, and one of the authors, his name is Jocko. And in the beginning of the book, he was telling about this operation in the Middle East where he was the commanding officer in charge of this whole operation. But things went wrong to the point where American troops were shooting at other American troops, which is a pretty big deal. That's the kind of scenario that you never want to have happen, especially on your watch. And thankfully, no American troops died in this incident. But this is the kind of thing where somebody was probably going to lose their job. And so after this scenario, they had a debrief meeting. So everybody involved in that situation was sitting around, and there were some higher-up officers who were responsible for just making sure that it was dealt with property. They were all, properly, were all in the room. And so Jocko looks out at everybody, and he says, who was responsible for this? Who was responsible for the friendly fire? And after a little bit of silence, somebody raises their hand. They're like, I was the one who was responsible. I didn't communicate well or something like that. And Jocko says, no, you are not the one responsible. Who was responsible for this situation? Again, somebody else raises their hand. They're like, it's my fault. I did this. And Jocko looks at them and says, no, it was not your fault. Who was responsible for this and so this goes on for a while. And finally, at the end, Jocko looks everybody in the eyes and he says, this was my fault because I was the commanding officer in this operation. And so both the success and the failure of this mission rests on my shoulders. And he took extreme ownership of the situation and owned up to that, that awful fault. And I think in doing that, he kept the respect of his men and he probably saved his job. And in doing that, he recognized that what happened was wrong, and he still owned up to it. And in, in Saul's situation, and him passing on the blame to others, it gives us a window into his heart that he's not taking this disobedience very seriously, and he's not willing to just own up to it. And what we see in this next section here is some of the motivation for Saul to disobey God in this way. This is what we see in verse 24. It says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. 
I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. So finally, Saul admits that he's wrong, and he gives us a little window into his heart and why he made the choices that he made. I kind of imagine Saul's soldiers in this situation where they do war with the Amalekites, and now they're in front of all of these goods, the sheep and the cows, and they're probably like, why would we waste all of this perfectly good meat? Besides, we just put our lives on the line to win this battle. We deserve a little bit more compensation than this. Saul, are you really going to tell us to kill these animals? And so there's two options on the table for Saul. Does he keep the favor of his men and just let them have these cows and these sheep? Or does he stay obedient to God in order that those animals be destroyed? And Saul's choice was dependent on who he feared the most. Did he fear the approval of people or the approval of God? Saul feared people more than he feared God. Now, fearing God doesn't necessarily mean that you're scared of God. It all goes back to asking yourself, like, what does God think of this? Like, if you are a people pleaser, you're probably like, what will people think if I wear this outfit? What will people think if I tell this joke? What will people think if I go to this event or don't go? And so to fear God is asking yourself, what does God think of the way that I'm living? Or if I do this thing, and is what I'm doing pleasing to God? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And because Saul feared people more than he feared God, he's known as a disobedient king, and his kingdom was like ripped from his hands. God, instead of blessing Saul's kingdom, turned to another man who would actually follow after his own heart. And so for Saul, there was no going back to undo what he had done. That kingdom was already ripped away from him. There was no way that he could regain this kingdom. Now, this all brings us to the final idea of are we, are we going to follow the path of Saul or are we going to keep obedience a really high priority in our lives? And maybe you could be saying, you know what? I haven't been obedient to God. I'm guilty of disobedience. I'm guilty of not taking responsibility for my sin. I'm guilty of fearing people more than I fear God. I'm kind of at the end of my rope here. Like, is God going to punish me the way that God punished Saul? And I want to take a moment here to just give some hope and say that, God, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus to be your leader and forgiver, then you do not have to fear the punishment of God for your sin, even if you are guilty, because God put that guilt on Jesus, and he punished Jesus for the guilt of all of our sins so that he would never have to punish those who believe in him. As Jesus was hanging up there on the cross, he says, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because God the Father turned his back on Jesus when Jesus was suffering on that cross. He treated Jesus as if he was a criminal, as if Jesus was guilty of every sin in the entire world. 
so that if you place your faith in Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins. And so if you are a Christian, even if you have really messed up, even if you can relate to Saul more than you would like to admit, and you are guilty of disobedience to God and and fearing people more than you fear God, and if you are at that point, my hope for you is that God is not looking to punish you. God isn't going to just turn his back on you even when you have messed up because he already put that punishment on Jesus. And God wants to come alongside you and to help you to find victory over your sin and your struggles. Now, this doesn't mean that it's okay to live in disobedience to God and do whatever you want. It doesn't mean that there's no consequence for our actions. I think there's a difference between punishment and discipline. And discipline is giving out consequences for the purpose of correction. And the Bible says that as a loving father, that God corrects his children. And so sometimes God lets us experience the consequences of our actions, but it's not to punish us. It's to teach us and to help us grow and learn from that and become more like Jesus in the end. And even in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this whole topic of obedience, it isn't just so that we can have a perfect record. It's not just about moralism. This is such an important way to show our love to God. Like if we aren't living in obedience to God, God probably isn't feeling the love. And it's hard to be obedient to God if we don't know what God's commands and instructions are. And so I think it is so important to be in God's word on a regular basis to know how God wants us to live. The application for this morning is for you to just take an honest look in your life and see is there any areas of your life where you are just living in disobedience to God and you're okay with it. And to to get to that point of not being okay with that disobedience in your life and telling somebody else about it so that that other person can come alongside you and give you that accountability to overcome that disobedience in your life. And then the last thing here is to read at least one verse from the Bible every day this week. At least one verse. And if you don't know where to start, I think a good starting point is the Version Bible app. They'll have the verse of the day every single day. So you don't even have to look up that verse. It'll just give it to you. And so my challenge is to just have God's word on your mind so that all throughout your day, you can know how God wants you to live so that you can live in obedience to him. And all of this comes back to just loving God with our actions. Now at this time, I'd like to transition to taking communion together as a church Communion is really just a way for us to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of our sins and have a relationship with God that starts in this life and goes on for all of eternity. And taking communion, it doesn't give us extra grace. It doesn't wipe away our sins. It's really just a symbol. The bread is a symbol of the body of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross. The juice is a symbol of the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. But before we take it together, I just want to highlight one more lesson from the life of Saul. I remember the first time that Saul was disobedient to God. 
he offered this sacrifice before the proper time, before Samuel got there. And remember the second time that Saul was disobedient to God. He left alive these cows and these sheep. And when he got busted by Samuel, he told Samuel that he was keeping those cows and those sheep in order to offer them as a sacrifice to God. And the common pattern here is that Saul cared more about these sacrifices, these rituals, than obedience to God. And so Samuel the prophet told Saul, he says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now to make a comparison to today, like we don't offer burnt sacrifices to God because of what Jesus did on the cross. But actually, in Romans chapter 12, I believe, Paul says to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And what he means by that is on a daily basis, surrendering our desires, surrendering everything in our lives to God through living for him in obedience. And what God really wants from all of us is for us to live in obedience for him from week to week, from day to day. Sometimes we can put too much value in things like this where it's like if we're not living for God and we take this this doesn't make us super spiritual or anything like that Uh, if we are not really loving God and we take communion like this it's kind of just going through the motions and so my challenge for you is if if there's an area of your life where you are living in disobedience to God and you're totally okay with that disobedience. My challenge for you is to not take communion this morning. Because it'd be like just going through the motions. And this doesn't mean that you have to be perfect to take communion. Let's face it, none of us are perfect. We are all sinners. And that's why Jesus died on the cross to begin with. It's because none of us are righteous enough. None of us are good enough. But my hope is that as we take communion this morning, that you would have full confidence that you are living a life for God Monday through Saturday, and that this is just one more expression of your devotion to God. So if you would like to take communion, you can go ahead and pull this out. It's a little trick for getting the the top piece open. If you break down this little tab, it's a little easier to get at the top piece to get to this wafer. And we're going to take it together in just a moment. See, before Jesus went to the cross, he took this bread and he said to his disciples, take it, this is my body. Let's take this together. You can open up the next part to get to the juice. And here Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let's take this as we remember the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. God, we did not deserve your grace. We don't deserve to be loved the way that we are loved. And God, there's nothing that we can do to pay you back for what Jesus did for us. There's no way that we could ever earn it. So help us to just receive that gift and understand that it's, it's grace. But God, help us also to seek you and to follow um, in your commandments. God, sometimes we do good with that. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just fall short. And in those moments, help us to not be okay with falling short, but also to remember that you are not turning your back on us, that you don't want to punish us because you've already put that punishment on Jesus. Help us to just call out to you, invite you to help us overcome uh, the sin and the struggles in our lives. And help us, God, to do it, not out of a sense of obligation, but just out of love for you because of the love that you have showed us. So I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.